All right. Um, let, me, let me just appeal to this outline. Uh, again, just working to get the flow of the narrative. Uh, Jesus, having made a promise some weeks earlier in Perea, you'll not see me until the, you welcome me as Messiah, contrives to make that happen by, uh, after the raising of Lazarus, taking himself to Ephraim and then waiting uh, and making his way up through Samaria and now down uh, the Jordan Rift. And, but he stops. He's traveling with those Passover pilgrims. He stops. They go into the city on Friday afternoon, and he uh, keeps the Sabbath. But now on Sunday morning, the city having been alerted, John 12, 12, to his coming, as he rides in, the city explodes in excitement Triumphal entry, presentation, but that is, uh, we said, uh, given Sunday, why Friday? I think the answer is Monday and Tuesday, because Jesus makes, as is his habit, he makes the truth concerning himself so dramatic, so clear, and he makes the, the point that you're going to have to reject the Pharisees in order to embrace the truth uh, of who I am. And uh, that's on Tuesday afternoon. That evening, there is a gathering at the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, and there they despair of their capacity to get Jesus dead during the Passover week, but Judas shows up and says, no, I can help. I can help you arrest him in the absence of the multitude. That means at the Passover celebration. Well, Jesus contrives to keep the place secret from Judas, so now Judas has to uh, sit through the Passover meal, but after the meal, the hand of the betrayer is with me, and now Jesus says to Judas, remember what you're going to do, do quickly. And Judas goes off to fetch the Sanhedrin. As Jesus begins to teach to the eleven in the upper room, 1431, very quickly, he says, suddenly rather, he says, rise, let's go hence. And he takes them across the city, by now it's about midnight, over to Gethsemane, where he gives himself to that gut-wrenching season of prayer. I always think that it's almost impertinent impertinent of us to gaze on that, that unspeakably intimate season of prayer between the Son and the Father, but God in heaven wants us to understand that. He gives it to us in some detail in the Synoptic Gospels because he, he, he needs, for I, I think that the, the idea is that, that we need to understand the depth of suffering to which Jesus knew he was going. But indeed, he does... Uh, commit himself to the Father's will. He is arrested sometime very late on Thursday. And we come to Friday, a day of messianic perfection. Now, what I have in mind, most importantly, of course, is Jesus crying out on the cross, it is finished. We're going to come to that. But, uh, and, and I, I, I'm going to uh, rather askew the notes. I'm just going to leave it there. But let me take you to, that is the, the overhead, but let me take you to your notes and let me just say, and, and there's so much going on here, and by the way, let me just say this, because there's no gateway between this and this. You know, but but it, it occurs to me, so I'm going to say it. Uh, honest to goodness, you know, there is a community of unbelieving, critical scholars, I guess you have to call them, they've got a lot of degrees, who make it their business to, uh, to uh, discredit the Bible, Okay. And what they love to do is to find discrepancies. They're not discrepancies, but they perceive them to be discrepancies at the most superficial, self-serving level. But guess what? The Gospels are their happy hunting grounds because you've got four guys telling the same story. And if there's one element of Jesus' life, of the Passion Week, which they will confidently insist there is no way to reconcile the biblical accounts of these trials, it is such a lie. 
They fit together so perfectly. I, and, and I'm not going to be able to go into great detail, but I, you don't have to twist things out of shape. You don't have to make leaps of logic. Just put them in order, and everything fits. But you have to understand, there are going to be six distinguishable hearings. Now, I always say trials, but trials isn't exactly right. But this is the situation. I'll walk you through those six just by way of anticipation. Number one, you have to understand that the, Jew, the Jewish leadership has despaired, appropriately enough, of getting Jesus. They know they can't simply take him off and stone him. They know that. And so what they have to do is to get the Romans to do their dirty work. All right? Now, how in the world are they going to persuade the Romans to crucify this Nazarene? The answer is seemingly obvious, and that is he claims to be a king. The Romans have no tolerance whatever for pretender kings. So we'll just, and especially at Passover, as I say, the, the, the Romans hate the Passover because everybody's thinking about sedition anyway. And here comes this one, and, and you think about the unfolding of the week itself. He rode into the city and was welcomed as a king. How hard is it going to be to get the Roman official, he is Pontius Pilate, remember now, this is where Jesus is always in the greatest danger, and he has walked into it. So now, here is the plot. The plot is to make the case to Pilate that Jesus is a pretender king, a seditionist. Sedition is rebellion, rising up against the, the, the Roman rule. Well, here's the problem, and I've mentioned this to you before. Jesus was wise as a serpent. As I said to you before, Jesus openly claimed throughout his ministry to be the Messiah of the Old Testament. But he didn't use the word Messiah because he knew it would be politically incendiary. He knew he would be arming his enemies. So what he does, and we saw it even there with the Sadducees, you know, I'll ask you a question, the baptism of John and so on. He does this again and again. It's so clever. And what he does is he takes to himself all of these Old Testament pictures and word, uh, word pictures and, and passages and so on. Remember when they handed him the Isaiah 61 scroll in Luke chapter 4 and he read that passage? What did he say to the people in the synagogue? This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. There's not a Jewish person in that synagogue, let alone in the world, is not going to hear Jesus saying, I am the Messiah. But are they going to go to the Roman authorities and open the scroll and say, he says to be the fulfillment of this right here. What in the world are you talking about? See the point? What is Jesus' favorite title for himself? 81 times, Son of Man. Son of Man comes right out of Daniel chapter 7, that glorious passage where there is this series of uh, four uh, Gentile kingdoms, and then the Ancient of Days, God the Father takes his, role, takes his seat, and there appears before him one like unto a Son of Man. And that Son of Man is dispatched to establish a fifth world kingdom. That's Messiah. Every Jewish listener understands son of man to mean messiah 81 times jesus refers to himself as the son of man but what if somebody goes to pilate and says you better do something this guy claims to be the son of man pilate's gonna say well me too you know i mean uh so honest to goodness it's a very very deliberate ploy and not ploy but but strategy that jesus uses now here's the point that's what gives rise to the midnight trial I say trial, it's more of a hearing before the Jews. Because the, Jew, the Jewish leadership has already arranged with Pilate, and I was talking to Brother John, 
and making the point that Wednesday is a silent day in the record. That's all we mean by silence. John said it's a busy day. There are a lot of things happening on Wednesday. Wednesday really helps us understand this narrative. One of the dynamics that's happening on that Wednesday, Tuesday night, Judas had made the bargain, uh, but one of the very important dynamics, oh, I'm sorry, more importantly, John, Tuesday afternoon, Jesus had driven them to that decision between the Pharisees and himself. And John said he calls it a switch day, and what he means is they're going to switch allegiance. They're sitting around thinking about this and realizing we can't go that far, so I think Wednesday is important just for that message to percolate through the city and people make decisions house by house. But also, there is a huge logistical preparation that has to be made for this arrest on Thursday night because in, in, the, in the Valley of Cadron. Because the Bible is explicit that Jesus, I'm sorry, that Judas comes with a cohort. He uses the word a cohort of soldiers. That's 600 soldiers. And a lot of people, and I don't know, it means that that's what a cohort is, and they may not have brought the, the mounted troops and so on, but it's a large group of soldiers. And I've heard people again and again say, well, that's crazy. Jesus never even had an army. Why would they bring? They weren't worried about Jesus. They were worried about a riot. They had Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday ringing in their ears. That's what's going on. But nonetheless, first of all, there's a cohort of soldiers. And then secondly, there is this midnight trial that we're about to talk about. This is, listen, folks, you've got to understand this. This is a, a culture where, number one, when the sun goes down, you go down. You don't do things in the, in the night. Light is very difficult. Number two, it's a, it's a culture in which you can't get a message from here to there any faster than you can get a person from here to there, right? So if you've got 70 or so Sanhedrin is living all around Jerusalem and they're old men and you're going to have a trial at 1 o'clock in the morning. See what I'm saying? You've got to have people running out and getting all that set up. And then the third point, when they finally do take Jesus to Pilate, the Bible says, John 18, 28, that, that they didn't want to go into the praetorium, that is Pilate's own home, lest they defile themselves. So they had, and there were some drachmas that changed hands here, you can bet, but they had induced him to bring his judicial apparatus out on the western side to a gate system on the western side. So the point is, it's only on Tuesday night that this whole drama begins because we're told that on Tuesday night they gather and they said, we can't do it, we can't do it during the feast. Who's that at the door? Judas, I'll help you. Okay, we can do it. So the whole plot begins, is laid, and, and starts to unfold on Tuesday night, right? And the trap is going to be sprung on Thursday night. Wednesday is anything but a quiet day, but it is a silent day in the record. In other words, say it another way, the record jumps from late Tuesday night to Thursday afternoon. Thursday afternoon, they prepare for the upper room, and then you have the upper room, and then the, uh, the uh, Gethsemane experience, and then Jesus is arrested. Now I go way back to it. My point is this, that the problem that the Jewish leadership has is that they know they're, they're, they're going to go to Pilate and try to make the case that Jesus is a pretender king, but they can't find anybody who can remember actually hearing him say he is Messiah because Jesus was so clever. So you're going to have the Jewish hearings, and I call them hearings because it's not a trial. They are trying, it's kind of a grand jury. They're kind of come up with an indictment. Does that make sense to you? Now let me break that down. I'm going to be very quick with this. But what happens is, all right, I, I, I brought it up, so I'm going to just make this point, that there is this, this, this claim in many quarters that you can't, you can't reconcile the, the, the accounts of the trials. It's totally, totally a lie. But the reason is because in typical fashion, different ones of the, of the gospelists tell different parts of the story. 
So what's going to happen is this. Jesus is going to be brought, first of all, to aged Annas. Now, just so you know, Annas is a very old, former high priest. He was so crooked that the Romans had kicked him out. And, by the way, time out. <laughs> Even in John chapter 11, you have that strange verse that says, Caiaphas was high priest that year. What's the problem with that? What do you think of as the high priest in the Old Testament? It's lifetime, right? So this is clearly horribly corrupted, and the, the, the Romans knew that the temple was very strategic, and so they, they actually, you, you had to bribe the Romans to give you control of the temple. And that's what Annas had done. And then he had been set aside because he was so crooked, but he got a couple of his sons-in-law in the high priestly office, and one of them is Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the nephew of, no, the, the son-in-law of Annas. Now, Annas is old, but there is on that same, very close to the place where that beautiful home was where Jesus kept the Passover, very close was the high priestly villa. This is not the house out south where they had gone on Tuesday night. This is the priestly villa. And so that's where the, tri the, the hearing before the Jewish authorities is going to be held. So here's what happens. They arrest Jesus, and they bring him first to Annas. Only John tells this story. So, you know, people get, get confused. But in John, we're told that he was brought, John 18, first to Annas. And... Uh, Annas tried to interrogate him. Now, let me say this, and I say it very delicately. Folks, uh, uh, i got to spend a minute with this. There, you, you can very easily, in various places, libraries, Internet, and so on, you can find lists of ways in which the Sanhedrin, the Jewish body of official judicial leadership, you can find lists of ways in which the Sanhedrin has violated their own legal protocols. It is an embarrassment. Now, as a matter of fact, uh, it's interesting. Sometime, go to the Internet, arm yourself, spend a little season in prayer, and just type in, who killed Jesus? And you're going to get a lot of stuff. But part of what you're going to get is the very standard contemporary Jewish line that it was the Romans who hounded Jesus to death and it was the Jews who begged Pilate not to kill Jesus and who tried to get Jesus to cop a plea. Now they'll write that, try to get cop to, you know, plea, a lesser plea. And if you read their literature and how they make a case, and it has to do with Pilate, and it's all wrong. I, I, I understand. But, but what's curious to me is that when you, when you, when you kind of distill it, what they say is, why is it that they re reject the, the gospel story of the trial, the Jewish trial? What they will say is, we would never do that. And I'm telling you, they got a point. This is so... But it is such a function of the hatred of the Jewish leadership. It's a function of Sunday and Monday and Tuesday. And they were beside themselves with anger. And so they really did high-handedly, and I say this with respect, and, and let me just take it one painful step further. You know that all throughout 
the history of this age since, since the days of Jesus, the Jews, the Jewish people in every age and every place have again and again, and I'm telling you, it's going on right now. They have been persecuted horribly under the claim that they are in some special way guilty of the death of Christ. Folks, it's a lie. We got to acknowledge that the Jewish generation there in Jerusalem and that, and that, and that day rejected Messiah. Now, there is no sense, it's not a biblical possibility that that guilt would be passed on generation to generation. I know they said, "His blood be upon us and our children. That's unbiblical, it can't happen. The soul that sins, it's the one that dies in Ezekiel 18. I haven't got time to spend with it. But my point is, I, should, I opened a can of worms. All I'm saying is, this is, a, 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 this is a, it's an embarrassment to the Jewish world. This record is. And, and uh, uh, in, in many ways, in, in startling ways, they do violate their own jurisprudential protocols. Now, the point is that one of those protocols is that the accused cannot be interrogated. This is why you, we have a Fifth Amendment. That's why we have that amendment in our Constitution. We understand the wisdom of this Jewish understanding. And you know where they got it from the Old Testament? In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall ever, every man. That, what that means is you can't be interrogating the, the, the accused in order to beat a confession out of them. And they understood that. Well, now here it is. And, and here's another protocol I'm going to bring up just to, because of the John 18 narrative, uh, the, the Annas, when he stands before it, Annas. Another protocol is you could never punish a man before he had been found guilty of something. All right, now think about this story. It's John 18. I'm just going to tell you the story quickly. Jesus is brought, first of all, John makes a big point of it. The, the, the synoptics have him taken to Caiaphas, because Caiaphas is the guy who's in charge of the Jewish trial. But John says, now wait a minute, I'll tell you something that they didn't mention, that he was first of all taken to Annas. And what seems to be the case is, aged Annas wants to be a part of this. He has undoubtedly an apartment there in this vast uh, 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 high priestly villa. And uh, so he says, hey, bring him in here first. They're probably convening this. You know, it take a little time now. We got him. We got him. And so all the men are going to wake up. They're sleeping in various quarters, and they're going to convene there in the great hall. But meanwhile, I'm making sense. That's for the actual trial. It's going to happen in a few minutes, or the hearing. But meanwhile, he's brought to Annas, and Annas says, tell me about your, your, uh, your teachings. He's trying to catch him in his words. And Jesus says, I've always spoken in open in the public places in synagogues, Ask the witnesses. Now, all Jesus is saying is, wait a minute here. you got your own ju jurisprudential protocol. This is illegal. You can't interrogate me. Ask the witnesses. Well, when he says that, there is a soldier assigned to Annas, and, Anna, and that soldier reaches over and somehow cuffs Jesus. And then Jesus says, if I've done something wrong, testify against me. But if not, why would you strike me? So you see what he's saying? He's just saying, live up to your own protocols. Well, nothing comes of that. That's stage one of the Jewish hearing. Now you have the long trial where, I say trial, I've got to keep saying that, but it, 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 they're, not, they're not trying to decide his guilt or innocence. They're trying to come up with a charge. And, and, and what happens is they, this is where they call all the witnesses. And another protocol of Jewish jurisprudence, by the way, is that if in a capital trial any two witnesses disagree immediately, the man is released and they, the, the, it's, it's thrown out of court. Well, they were disagreeing. They couldn't find and, 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 and they kept trying. Somebody who could, who could testify, I have heard this man claim to be a king. Well, 
in a way that would make sense to a, or be, be uh, 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 incendiary or, or to, to, to the Roman judge. All right, I lose my way. Finally, this is what happens. This is important. It's recorded explicitly in both Matthew and Mark. Jesus, this trial, by the way, this portion of the trial is carefully recorded in Matthew and Mark. This second stage of the Jewish hearing where the whole group, the Sanhedrin, is gathered. Hearing witnesses, nothing. So finally, Caiaphas. And I picture him, Caiaphas, the high priest, the villain. Uh, I keep saying, he's the one who is behind this. But it's going to become important in just a minute. I see him kind of quiet. You know, there's a lot of murmuring, perhaps. And he says, all right. And he puts Jesus under oath. He says, I adjure thee by the living God. Now, this is wrong. You can't interrogate the accused by Jewish law, by Old Testament law. But he does it. He puts him under law, under oath, and he says, tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? Now, I can take you throughout the Gospel of John and the other Gospels as well and show you that this is exactly what Jesus Christ, do you remember the purpose statement to John's Gospel? Many other signs did Jesus which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God and that believing you might have life through his name. So that's exactly what throughout his ministry. This is what Martha said when Jesus said, do you believe? And he said, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is what uh, Peter said when Jesus said, who, tell, who do you think I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So this is almost formulaic. This is what Jesus claimed. And now Caiaphas looks, he quiets the crowd. Jesus is standing there. He's the accused. And, and he says, tell us, are you the Christ? the son of the living God. Now, you've got to understand, Pilate's, the clock is ticking. He knows he's got about a 4.30 appointment with Pilate, to, and he's got to get this done. So he's desperate, and I don't think Pilate had any hope whatever that this was going to work. But to his surprise and amazement and delight, Jesus said, I am. Well, we got him. See the point? He has just openly confessed in the first, that he is Messiah. That means king. We got him. Now we can take him to Rome, uh, to the Roman official, Pilate. Now, there is another protocol that was absolutely set in stone uh, in Jewish jurisprudence, and that is that you could not have a trial between sundown and sunup. And the reason was that you couldn't get witnesses. Like I say, this is a culture where you don't do things at night. So, so you, you couldn't have a trial. And, 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 and the Sanhedrinists knew that Pilate was not well affected by this whole charade. And so lest that he just toss it out of court, this is what happens. And this is where people get confused. Now it's about, we don't know exactly what time it is, but it is, it is getting on toward dawn, but it's not yet dawn. And the trial that they just held, the hearing they just held, was between sundown and sunup. You can't do that. So Jesus is taken, and the way I picture it, Caiaphas's priestly villa undoubtedly has various installations and buildings, but then a large courtyard so Jesus is taken across that courtyard to some sort of a, maybe a, 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 a cistern or something where he's held as they wait for the, coming up, uh, for the coming of the dawn. Does that make sense to you? Because what they did in the middle of the night was illegal. So Jesus is taken across that courtyard and held somewhere until, and when I say the coming of, I don't mean the, the sun in all of its glory. I mean the first hint of gray on the eastern horizon. Because all they're trying to do, remember, they got two considerations. Number one, they want to repeat this process so they can go to Pilate and say, we did it after the sunup. Number two, they got to get this whole thing done before the city wakes up. So they got real time constraints here. So now, 
And this is all in the scriptures, I'm telling you. Now, uh, Jesus is taken, and they wait for the first blush of dawn. Now, what else is going on in that courtyard? Remember? It's Peter. He's made his way in there. Jesus, just a few hours ago, told him twice before the sunrise, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. He's done it twice. So now what happens? The first blush of gray, and I will opine that it's about 4.30 in the morning because I've, I've gotten up to watch. A couple of times when I was in Israel at that season of the year, get up, try and figure, even take into account the daylight saving time and all that sort of thing. So I think it's probably about 4.30 that you just start to have a little gray on the eastern horizon. But they need to repeat what they did in the middle of the night. So they go and they fetch Jesus and they bring him back through that same courtyard. Now, they are waiting for the first blush of dawn. What else happens at the first blush of dawn? Of course, the roosters begin to crow. And so now as he's being brought, and by, now, and by the way, when he was held there, and I do not believe this was the Jewish leadership, many people will say it, I don't think it is. A closer reading, I think, of the Gospels will say he, Jesus, am I making sense? Jesus had been taken to be held there just to wait for the dawn. And while he was there, some of the Roman soldiers who were assigned to this detail were making fun of him. This is when they blindfold him, cuffed him, tell us who, this may be when they plucked his beard. But at any rate, Jesus has not been horribly tortured, but he's been much abused, and he's certainly manacled, and he would be bloodied from the cuffing and perhaps the beard and so on. So now he's being dragged back across the courtyard into the main hall where the Sanhedrin is once again going to put that question to him. And uh, as he had as brought, Peter, for the third time, swears he never knew Jesus. And while the words are still falling from his mouth, he hears the rooster begin to crow, and he looks, and the Bible says that Jesus looked upon Peter. I think they were both in the courtyard because of those dynamics, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. And now Jesus is brought back in, and I'm not going to walk you through it, but suffice it to say, they put the same question to him. It's a little more, uh, there's, some, there's a little hiccup, but they put the same question to him. Tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus, once again, ultimately says, I am. Now he's taken to Pilate. Does that make sense to you? So the Jewish hearings really were, first of all, before Annas, then in the middle of the night, but because it was in the middle of the night, they were afraid it wouldn't pass muster. So he's held for a time, and now at the very blush of dawn, he's brought in very quickly, no witnesses, no testimony, just tell us again, Jesus does, off to Pilate. Does that make sense to you? All right, now I want to spend some time with Pilate. And I've contrived to have, have time to spend with Pilate. Uh, and let me just say that, uh, yeah, let me introduce this this way, because this really means a lot to me. Some years ago, not too many years ago, I, I, I just happened to be reading, I mean, I, I don't know what it was going on, but I, 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 came, I was in First Timothy, and I read the verse in First Timothy chapter 6. We're at the very conclusion of his epistle to this young co-worker of his. Paul says this, I adjure thee by the living God and by the good confession that Jesus witnessed before Pontius Pilate. Remember that phrase? And what struck me as I read that was, quite clearly, Paul expects Timothy to run with that. In other words, there is something about the way which, in which Jesus handled himself before Pontius Pilate that Paul expected Timothy to 
understand what he was saying. Press yourself into the mold of Jesus as he stood before Pontius Pilate. And I, I think it's fair to say that the early Christian community went to school on the way Jesus handled himself. But I thought, you know what, I, I, off the top of my head, I'm not sure what's going on there. I could, I could walk my way through, but exactly what's at stake? Why would he? Well, I spent some time with Jesus before Pilate, and it is one of the most remarkable moving, I think, instructive passages. There's so much to learn, so I'm going to take you there. And let me just say this. I am going to put a a reading on Pontius Pilate that most don't. And I think I can defend it. I can walk you through where it comes from. I understand the historians that attack Pilate uh, very early and the reason that he's regarded almost universally as the primary villain here. I don't think a reading of the gospel story will support the popular attitude toward Pilate. I mean... Is that all right? I mean, I think very possibly we're going to see Pilate in heaven, okay? So I'm going to put a very different reading on this than what you're used to. But you, you, you check it scripturally by all means. But, and, and I think that's important because I think Pilate was impacted by this accused criminal, Jesus of Nazareth. He was bottomless. I mean, the record is so clear. All right, so let me walk you through it, and let me, let me make one other point, and this is, this is a uh, not altogether subtle advertisement to get you to go to Israel with somebody, for heaven's sake. <laughs> but there are, here, let me just show you this quickly. There are, two, there, there are two ideas as to where Jesus was tried before Pontius Pilate. And the one in the blue circle here is that he was tried in, uh, at the Fortress Antonia. Now, understand this. Understand this. i got to straighten this out. Number one, Herod the Great built this city. Now, he, Herod the Great is a dead guy, all right? He dies just as Jesus is being born. But we still talk about Herod's palace. This is Herod's palace over here on the west side of the city. He doesn't live there anymore. He's, he's, he's dead. I don't want to talk about where he's living. But uh, it's still there. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, uh, Josephus, the the Roman Jewish historian of the first century, says that the, 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 next to the temple itself, the most beautiful building he ever built was his own palace, and one might expect that. It's about a fifth of a mile long. It has huge, two huge installations, and then, and with dozens of rooms and, and, and gardens and, and bathhouses and so on. Then this, Huge courtyard with every sort of uh, just every sort of luxury that you could imagine that Herod had. Now, the point is, Herod's a dead guy. The guy who is running things here, the guy, the Roman officer who is in charge, is Pontius Pilate. Pilate lives down on the coast at a place called Caesarea Maritima, where Herod had built another palace. So he lives down there. But at feast seasons, he would come up. And the question is, and by the way, in in John eighteen. We, John says that the Pharisees didn't want to go into the praetorium. Now, praetorium is a Roman term that refers to the official, not the official, the domicile, the place where the most important official is staying. It actually comes primarily from the battlefield where there'd be one big tent, and that was the praetorium, and that was the personal residence of the senior officer, and so that becomes kind of the headquarters. Okay, that's what it means. So... Pilate lives in Jerusalem, but when he comes, I'm sorry, he lives in Caesarea Maritima, down on the coastline, 
But when he comes up to Jerusalem, as for instance for the Passover feast, where is he going to stay? All right. There was the idea, it doesn't have any history beyond the Middle Ages, the Crusaders invented this, but there is the idea that he would have been staying at the Antonia, a soldierly barracks. On the other hand, I would argue, and virtually everybody today acknowledges, he would have been at Herod's palace. And one of the arguments, just real quickly, is that, okay, Herod's palace was nicer, it was a palace as opposed to a barracks, but... On the other hand, the Antonia was better fortified and it was dangerous. If you know anything about Herod, you know that he's the most paranoid man on earth. And I always say, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean somebody's not chasing you, if you know what I'm saying. They had good reason to be paranoid. And when he built a palace, it was fortified beyond what you can imagine. So there wasn't a more carefully fortified spot in, in Herod's realm than his own home palace, for heaven's sake. So I think he was staying here. That is, Pilate, have I confused you? The issue is not Herod. He's a dead guy. That's his palace, no doubt. But what about this Pontius Pilate who lives down in Caesarea Maritima? He's only going to come up here for the feast. Where is he staying? Because that's where Jesus was tried. And uh, I think it was here at Herod's palace. And I give you a picture here. And this is one of the things I love to do. And some of you have been here with me. But this area right here was only uncovered in the 1970s. And it is on the western wall of Herod's palace. I haven't got time to develop it. But uh, this picture right here, I think, really represents well, this picture in the bottom right, really represents well what's at stake because what you have, it's not real sharp, but you have a gate with a massive walkway, and that gate features, and this is not, uh, this, there are flaws in this, in this picture, but the gate features a raised spot where a judge would sit. It's called a bema seat. There, they found remnants of a bema seat there, all right? So I don't think there's any doubt that this is the place. And what's important is that it's open to this vast descending green hill where thousands of people could gather. Because remember, they're all living in, in tents all around the city. And how long do you think it would take on Friday morning when the word began to spread that this Nazarene, who is the most exciting thing we've ever heard of, and we welcomed him as king and cheered him when he, when he defeated his enemies early in the week, how long would it take for the news to spread throughout the city that that Nazarene was on trial for his life? And it's this vast open area where, where tens of thousands of people, are, yeah, really tens of thousands of people can gather. It's pretty much untouched today because it was only recently realized that this place was there, and soon enough, I always say, they're going to build a big church there, and you're going to have to pay, and you won't be able to see anything. But in the meanwhile, it's there it sits. You can just contemplate it. So I'm going to go back to uh, Friday as a day of Messianic. Now, let me just, with that background, forgive me, I just can't resist. But here's the thing. It's Friday morning somewhere around 4.30. Remember, the Sanhedrinists had been waiting for the first blush of dawn. They've accomplished that. They brought Jesus to Pilate. Now there are going to be three stages to the Roman trial. And I want you to remember, as we, as we trace this, remember what Paul said there in 1 Timothy 6 about the good confession. That's something you speak that Jesus witnessed before Pontius Pilate. All right, quickly, now I'm going to go back. Here are the three stages, everybody acknowledges this, of the Roman trial. And this is a trial. And by the way, it's a Roman trial. Pilate is going to interrogate Jesus. Well, that's okay by Roman. If you're not a citizen, he can 
He can do whatever he wants. So, so all those Judas protocols that are obtained in the Jewish world, that doesn't apply here. But Pilate is the duly constituted authority. And folks, this is kind of where I'm taking you. I really think there's some pertinence to this. Uh, it's a bit of a, a sidebar, but I, I really think it's important. I think the day could come very easily, rather quickly, when you and I may stand before a very hostile official authority and give answer for our faith. I think that could happen. And this is the paradigm. I think this is what Paul's saying to Timothy. Learn, go to school on Jesus. And the way Jesus conducts himself, the good confession that he makes is staggering. So let me walk you through it and then go back. And I'll show you why. Number one, this is what happens. He is brought by the Sanhedrinists. The city is still asleep. This is John 18, verse 28. And Jesus is brought to, to Pilate, and Pilate comes out probably on that scene that I just showed you on that raised beam of seat just outside of a gate on the western side of the city. Not, this is not the western wall of the temple. That's over on the other side of the city. This is the western wall of the city overlooking the, uh, the Hanon Valley. But the point is, Pilate comes out and asks a legitimate question. What is the charge? I'm just going to walk you through this real quickly. The Jewish authorities, and at this time the city is still sleeping, they're trying to do this under cover of night, and they say, look, if he weren't a malefactor, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Just crucify him. I think what they are saying is, Pilate, you know what? We gave you some money. This thing is all planned out. Uh, we met with your emissaries. We bring him to you. We charge him. You just crucify him. Pilate says, I'm not going to do that. If that's the way you want it, you go crucify him. Or you go try him. You go try him, not crucify him. You go try him. And the, the Jewish authorities say, you know that we cannot put him to death. So now, Pilate takes Jesus inside the praetorium. Let me take you back to that, because I can, I can. He takes him inside the praetorium. This right here. So here's this gate, and Pilate comes down and shakes Jesus. That gate is there. Now, it's filled in and so on, but it's there. You can see where the steps are that go into that gate and so on as it stands today. But the point is he takes him inside, and for the first time, you have a private conversation between Jesus and Pilate. Now, I want to go back to that. But after that conversation, Jesus, Pilate comes out, and he, for the first of five times, announces this man is guiltless. Now, when he does, that's the first stage of the trial, because when he does, Jesus' accusers say, oh, he's not guiltless, he's a seditionist, and he's made trouble all throughout his life, beginning at Galilee. Well, when Pilate, who is desperate to be out from under this, this is a hot potato to end them all, and when he hears the word Galilee, he thinks, well, that's not my jurisdiction, that's Herod's jurisdiction, Herod Antipas. And he happens to be right here in town, so Jesus is sent to Herod Antipas. Now, again, it's the middle of the night. Herod Antipas is making merry, uh, he, and, and he is hoping to see Jesus do some miracle. And Jesus, some of Jesus' accusers make their way, and they're casting their accusations at Jesus, and Jesus is absolutely mute. He never says a thing. Finally, quite frankly, Herod just gets, he thinks that this may be John the Baptist. This is the guy who killed John the Baptist. He's pretty, still pretty spooked by it. But nothing comes of it, and Jesus will say nothing and so Herod says, nuts to it, sends him back. That's the second stage. Now, as Jesus is brought back, and I will argue that while Jesus was absent, that is, while he was off before Herod Antipas, and I don't think that was very far away, but in the few minutes that he was gone, 
Pilate was desperately trying to come up with some sort of strategy to be done with this. And he had a pretty good idea. Because Pilate lived through Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. You can bet, as the Roman officer, he was scared to death of what this might become. Because this could, but at any rate, so Pilate thinks to himself, now wait a minute. These people love him. And I think as he sat there on that throne and could look out over the hillside and he saw the city start to wake up, because it does, it's in the record, now the people start to show up, that Pilate thinks to himself, we have a protocol, we have a, 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 we have a, we have a, a, a custom that at Passover we allow, uh, and, and the plans evidently were to deliver Barabbas, but I'll ask them if they want Jesus, and they'll go for Jesus because after all they welcome him as king on Sunday. So Pilate decides to come up with something clever. I'm going to go over their head. So probably to the frustration of the Jewish authorities, Pilate stands there and addresses the people out in the hillside and says, who would you give, have me give you, Jesus or Barabbas? And, to his, and by the way, the Bible says the Sadducees persuaded the people to say, give us Barabbas. And so they begin to cry out, give us Barabbas. These are important people. And Pilate's dumbfounded. He, he, he's just dumbfounded. And so he says, and it's so interesting what he says, what would you have me to do with Jesus, the Christ? What he means by, what do you want me to do with this man who you welcomed as your Christ on Sunday, for heaven's sakes? And they begin to cry out, crucify him. Pilate's desperate. So now Pilate takes Jesus undoubtedly inside the praetorium. Interestingly enough, that huge, beautiful palace that Herod had built for himself, Herod the Great, included a plush barracks for the Praetorian Guard. Pilate had a crack unit of Roman troops, which he kept very, very happy. And so they had their own special barrack unit down there. It was plush, and it was probably to them that he sent Jesus, and now Jesus is scourged, and he's horribly scourged. But then Jesus is brought out, and I picture Pilate standing Jesus right in this doorway, right here, and a crowd is looking on, and Pilate stands off to the side and he says, Behold the man. I think what he is saying is, have you had enough? Are you telling me that this man is a threat to Rome? Is that enough? But they began to cry, crucify him. And again, Pilate said, I'm not, five different times he's going to say, the man is guiltless. I'm not going to crucify him. And then the Sanhedrinists, and this is so big, and there is so much theology in these. Jesus, in this Jesus accusers, this is John 19, verse 7. Jesus accusers say this, if you won't crucify him as a seditionist, then we have a law. And by our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. That is so important. The reason, we're going to come back to this in the morning, but the reason Jesus died Ultimately, it's in the record, having been exonerated again and again by the duly appointed judge who had interrogated him carefully. I'm going to go back to it. But the reason Jesus died, having been exonerated of sedition, the reason he died is because he claimed to be the Son of God. And can I say this, folks? For a man to claim to be God is blasphemy. It's blasphemy of the highest order. It's blasphemy worthy of death, unless it just happens to be the truth. And never before in human history had it been the truth. 
And I think to that generation of Jews, almost reasonably, it was unthinkable that God could become a man. Did I ask you this before? What, 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 what is the primary? You believe that Jesus is the Son of God, right? What would you appeal to as the primary biblical evidence that Jesus is God, very God? Come on, this is an easy question. It's his resurrection, right? They didn't have the resurrection. All they had was this Nazarene. They knew him all of his life, many of them. They had watched him grow up. And now and now he can do a lot of amazing miracles, but he's a man. He's a man in every conceivable way. He doesn't have a halo. He doesn't glow in the dark, for heaven's sakes. He is a man, and he's claiming to be God. And so, led by the Jewish authorities, the people said, yeah, he's got to die because he makes himself the Son of God. Now, the Bible says, John 19, 8, when Pilate heard that, he was the more afraid. So he took Jesus in the praetorium, and you have a second private conversation. And after that second conversation, he brings Pilate out, and the Bible says that he tried harder to release him. But the Sanhedrin played their trump card. Remember I told you, Pilate had used up all of his coupons back in Rome. I could walk you through it. And they said, if, if you don't crucify him, we're going to tell Caesar that you're not a friend of Caesar's. And now Pilate capitulates. I think there's more going on than just that charge, and that's where I want to take you. So I'm going to go back because, interestingly enough, so I said there are these three stages to the Jewish hearing, uh, Annas, and then the main trial, and then the post-dawn trial, uh, not trial, hearing, remember that, Jesus confessed. And there are three stages to the Roman trial before Pilate. First of all, uh, when, when he's brought and, and, uh, and Pilate asks for a charge and they won't give it to him. He takes him inside, comes back out. He's guiltless, no ever since Galilee. Then over to Herod Antipas, nothing happens of it, comes back. Now you have the Barabbas incident, the scourging incident, and uh, Pilate continues to insist, I'm not going to crucify him, takes him inside, comes back out, and they say, we're going to tell Caesar, and he turns him over. That's the quick story. Does that make sense to you? Now, here is a really interesting element of that entire drama, and that is this, that in that entire story, Jesus never speaks. Remember now, we're looking for the good confession that Jesus made before Pontius Pilate. But in that entire story, Jesus never speaks except when he's alone with Pilate. So I began to realize that has to be the good confession. So let me take your two and take your Bibles and go to John 18. There are these two times. Now, I don't want to rehearse the way I could, but there are these two times where Jesus does indeed have this private conversation with Pilate in the Praetorium, and this has got to be that uh, good confession. So let me take you, first of all, to John 18, uh, and it would be, uh, we've got to pick it up with verse 33. So, John 18 and verse 33. Let me get it on the screen here. I love this. It's a little big. All right, now this is what happens. Again, they bring Jesus to Pilate. Pilate says, what's the charge? Hey, if he weren't a malefactor, I'm not going to do that. So Jesus and Pilate go alone into the praetorium. It's about 4.30 in the morning. Now, folks, I'm going to get myself whipped up a little bit here, but I love this. So, see it here? He entered the praetorium again, and he called Jesus, and he said to him, now I want you to think about this, and folks, 
This is one of those places where we have to factor in very deliberately the genuine humanity of Jesus. Because Pilate asks right here, are you the king of the Jews? Well, now, folks, let's think about this. This is a cripplingly ambiguous question. Pilate might have been asking, are you the long-awaited Messiah of Israel? What's the answer to that? Isn't that hard? You betcha him. On the other hand, he might have been asking, given the circumstances, given that he's a judge and Jesus has been accused, he might be asking, are you guilty of what they are charging you with, namely sedition? What's the answer to that question? No. Jesus is not a criminal. And Jesus cannot allow the record to be in any way ambiguous or corrupted. Now, had the Spirit of God directed or enabled, however you like it, Jesus, had he flipped the God switch? enabled you know, Jesus to know supernaturally what Pilate meant, then he wouldn't have to ask, but he didn't. The Spirit of God didn't. And I'm going to tell you, one of the things, and this is, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for applications. I think one of the applications, if we just ask ourselves, okay, what can we learn from this good confession? How ought we to frame our minds and our spirits as we anticipate any sort of this sort of horrible confrontation? And the first one element of the, I think what we learn is this, that Jesus was jealous for the truth. In other words, he's not careless. He, because he goes on to say, look at it there in, in the next verse. Jesus says, are you asking this, are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? What he's saying is, Pilate, are you asking me out of your heart if I'm a king of the Jews, or are you asking me about what I'm accused of, if I'm guilty of it? It's an honest question. It's a question born of the fact that Jesus, in his genuine humanity, had to sort out the meaning of Pilate's horribly ambiguous question. That makes sense to you? Now, Pilate answers. He says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? He's a judge. So clearly he's saying, I'm asking, are you a seditionist? All right, now, verse 36. I love this verse. This verse, uh, I may step on a toe or two. I don't know. If so, I think it's got it coming, so there. But listen, this verse is one of the most misused verse, I think, in, in the Bible. Uh, I won't get into it at all, but when he says, my kingdom is not of this world, if this doesn't mean anything to you, fine, just leave it alone. But for those of you who would know what, I'm, what I mean by this, let me just say, I got a lot of amillennialist friends, I'm convinced, any one of them accidentally drops his Bible, it flops open to this verse. <laughs> hear what I'm saying? This is their verse. Oh, we got you here. All right, my kingdom is not of this world. What we're told, look, Jesus is on trial for his life. It's 4.30 in the morning. He is alone in the praetorium with a Roman official. That Roman judge has asked him a very legitimate question, are you a seditionist? And so Jesus seizes the opportunity to deliver himself of a one-sentence lecture on kingdom theology that only says everything the Old Testament ever said. Do you think? Jesus is answering the question. And what drives me, what really disappoints me about the way this verse is treated is there is such genius in this. Think about this, folks. After this initial interchange, Pilate is going to go out and he is going to announce this man is guiltless. And against the most awful pressure uh, in a situation where it would have been the easiest thing for him just to cave and get rid of this, 
Pilate digs his heels in in the most remarkable way and will not be dissuaded. This man, five different times, this man is not a seditionist. Here's my question to you. How came Pilate to that persuasion? It's right here. Jesus makes an absolutely airtight legal argument. He settles it in the mind of the judge with this verse. Pilate, listen, Pilate didn't live in a corner. Pilate, listen, there was no people in the Roman Empire who gave themselves more often to sedition than the Jewish people. And the seditions always looked the same. You know, and you'll appreciate this when we get to Israel someday, perhaps when you get to Israel, but I always say Israel is like one big paintball arcade. I mean, it's just, it's just made, it's made for guerrilla warfare. And the Romans just couldn't handle this. They knew nothing about it. But the point is that this is what would happen. A pretender Messiah would go find him some fastness down by the Dead Sea in the Jeshimon where he knew the hills and he knew the watering spots and he knew the caves and he knew the hiding places and he would gather a little militia and he'd come out and he'd fall on some armory, some small Roman armory and capture the arms and then he would ambush in these deep defiles some Roman uh, troop and so on. And, and, and it, they all looked the same. Pilate knew this. Jesus simply said, remember the question before the house, and you've got, for heaven's sakes, you've got to measure this in terms of what's going on. The question is, are you a seditionist? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, if you wonder what he means by of, the world, of this world, it wouldn't hurt to read the next sentence. Because he says, if my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I not be taken. But my kingdom does not come. Remember, the only question before the house is, are you a threat to Rome? Are you a seditionist? Are you trying to mount a rebellion? Well, my kingdom doesn't come this way. My kingdom's not of this world. If it were, then my, king, my, my, my servant... This is why, by the way, it was so important for Peter to put away his sword the night before. So Jesus can make this argument. Now, I picture Pilate stepping back, folding his arms, stroking his chin, and saying, man, he's got a point there. This man has gone, Jesus, I'm, I'm Pilate, Jesus has gone up and down the countryside. He's gathered hundreds and thousands of people to himself. Every one of those is a better Roman citizen than he ever, a Roman occupant than he ever was. There's not a hint anywhere in all of his dramatic uh, 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 going from place to place, doing miracles, drawing people to himself. Nobody ever raised a sword against Rome. And I think Pilate stood there and said, it's ludicrous. It's insane to suggest that this man is a seditionist. And he becomes convinced. Folks, it's in the record that he's asking a question, and after the answer to this question, he never, ever doubts Pilate that Jesus is innocent. It didn't just happen. That's the argument. And it's a, it's a stroke of genius argument. Now, what happens next, and is really staggering, is that Pilate asks another question. He says in verse 37, are you a king then? Now, quite clearly, what he means is, if you're not a seditionist, are you the long-awaited king? I think Pilate was something of a seeker. He, again, he didn't live in a corner. Uh, Jesus had been making this claim. Pilate, had, Pilate became prefect in, in Israel in 26. This is 33. So for those seven years or so, he has been ruling these people. He knows them well, and he knows they're looking for a Messiah. And whatever, but, but I'll tell you what, folks, uh, 
I love Jesus' answer. I am so hungry for the kingdom. I said this to you before. Folks, can I just say, don't get too fixated on heaven, okay? I mean, it's a glorious idea. It's a glorious place, and it beats all the alternatives, for heaven's sakes. And we're glad for those who have gone before us and are there, and they're delighted. But that's not where they're headed. If I die today and go to heaven, I get to enjoy being with the Savior and be with my loved ones. But you know what? This world still lies in the lap of the evil one. And everything that is sacred is despised, and everything that is, is, is despicable is celebrated. Aren't you hungry for that to be put right? That's what the kingdom's all about. And there is coming a day when, think about this. If this doesn't send chills up down your spine, I don't know what does. There is coming a day when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as water covers the sea. You know, there are those who say that's today. Is that happening here in Upland? Is that pretty much the case? No, it's not happening back in North Carolina, I'll tell you. It's going to happen. Jesus is going to make it happen. But my point is, Jesus, so he says, are you a king? Jesus was a premillennialist. <laughs> this is what he says. Oh, just cherish this. You say rightly that I'm a king. It was for this purpose that I was born. It was for this purpose that I came into this world, to declare that truth. Not just to, to, to say that it's an articulate, but it has demonstrative force. I'm absolutely convinced. So his point is uh, to bear witness to that truth, that I am a king. And then he says this. I want you to remember it. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now that's the first of two. At this point, Pilate does throw his hands in the air, and they say, what well, is truth? I mean, he... He's in a real tight spot here. But what happens is that's the first interrogation. Again, goes out, announces this man is guiltless. It, all, it, the city is still asleep, but the Sanhedrinists, the accusers are there. They begin to erupt. He's trouble ever since Galilee. Off to Herod. Nothing. Pilate brings him. Uh, he's brought back to Pilate. you got the Barabbas thing. Then you got the scourging thing. Pilate is desperate. You know what? Peter says this, Acts 3, I can't, I'd have to find the verse, but it's in the middle of his sermon uh, and, uh, at Solomon's porch. Remember the silver and gold have I none passage, you know? But in the, in the midst of his sermon, Peter says to the Jewish people, you by wicked hands crucified Jesus when Pilate was determined to let him go. That's Peter's assessment of this story. Pilate was determined. See, everybody you read makes Pilate the grand cynic and he doesn't mean any of this and he's the real. No, no. He was determined to let Jesus go. And the whole Barabbas and scourging thing. But, again, as I said, now we've got to go to John 19. And what happened is, after he scourged him and so on, he comes out in verse 4. Okay, so what happens is, John 18 is the first time where Jesus and Pilate are alone. Comes out, the man's guiltless. No, he's trouble since Galilee. Off to Herod Antipas. There for a while, comes back. Barabbas, the scourging. And now the people say, well, if you have, right here in verse 7, if you won't crucify him as a, uh, a seditionist, we have a law. According to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. And therefore, let me take you here. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and he went into the praetorium again, and he brought Jesus in. Now let me tell you something. This is a, the, the, to me, this is one of the most stunning scenes in the gospels but it's hard you, 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 
there is that about it which is a little, myst- a little difficult. So I'm going to give you my read of it. But I love what happens because can you imagine? Can you imagine? Now, again, Pilate remembers Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. He remembers these same people. And, 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 but now here they are crying for his crucifixion. Crucifixion is ugly. So he goes in and he calls Jesus in and he says here in verse, uh, uh, in, in verse 8, he says, where are you from? I think he's saying, who in the world are you? What is going on here? Jesus won't speak. He says, he, he's, he's, he gave him no answer. So verse 10, Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? You're not going to speak to me? Now here's the point at which my read, and, and you, you spend time with this and decide on your own, but in verse 11, the way Jesus responds, uh, I'm going to put a little different spin on it. Now watch it. Jesus said, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. All right, now hang with me here for a moment. Generally, from above is taken to mean from God, right? Is that how you read it intuitively? I don't think that's what it means. For two primary reasons, the big one is the second, but the first one is, honest to goodness, now you do what you will with this. But I don't think that's an appropriate way. It's kind of snarky. It's kind of, Pilate, don't take too much to yourself. You wouldn't even be here if my father hadn't put you here, something like that. I don't know if that's the proper way to respond. But more importantly, if that's what he means, how do you make sense of that word right there? Because what Jesus says is, you'd have no power at all unless it were given you from above. Therefore, the one who turned me over to you, that's Caiaphas, has the greater sin. Now, if what Jesus is saying is, Pilate, don't take too much to yourself. You wouldn't even be here, but my Father in heaven who orders all things put you here. Therefore, Caiaphas is more wicked. I can't get there. I don't understand the therefore. Does that make sense to you? How do you get from my Father put you here to Caiaphas is the greater sinner? That doesn't make any sense to me. But I think the way you ought to read this is this. From above means by the Roman officials above you. So now what Jesus is saying is, all right, now let me, my imagination take off just a little bit. Because I rather picture Jesus standing there, and Pilate is really frustrated. He's at the end of himself. And he's tried so desperately to release Jesus. And he, I think he's looking for help, but he brings Jesus in and he says, where are you from? And Jesus won't answer. And Pilate says, don't you realize I have the authority. I have to decide you're going to live or die. And I like to picture Jesus maybe taking those manacled, bloodied hands and stepping forward and putting his hands on Pilate's shoulders and looking him right in the eye and saying, Pilate, you would have no authority here at all except this jurisdiction was assigned you by those above you. Now it makes all the sense. Therefore, The one who has the greater sin is Caiaphas. He's the one who has hounded me to death. Now, if you allow that reading, we're still left with the question, and we are under any reading, what is Jesus saying? Folks, I I am convinced 
that Jesus is giving Pilate permission to go ahead. Yeah, now let's, this is a real situation. Jesus has to die. Pilate has perhaps discovered a reserve of character that very few people would have expected of him. But he is doing everything in his power to make sure that doesn't happen. It has to happen. Pilate has a role to play. And I really think Jesus is saying, as he said to Judas, what you're going to do. Now, it doesn't absolve Pilate of guilt. What he did was wrong. But by the same token, I think it properly taxonomizes the guilt and says the real guilt belongs to the one who had hounded Jesus to death. But my point is, I think what happens now is Pilate, he, he's, he's frustrated. He, I mean, he's, he's, he's at the end of himself. But the Bible says explicitly, I have it right here, John 19, verse 8, that, verse, I'm sorry, yes, chapter 8, verse, uh, it's verse 12 is what I'm trying to say. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jewish leadership cried out saying, if you, are, uh, if, if you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. And therefore, when Pilate heard that, he brought Jesus out, he sat down in the judgment seat. Now we're going to flesh this out with the synoptics because more details are given us in other Gospels. So I picture him bringing out Jesus, standing there in the place of accusation. Pilate rather ceremonially marches up to this Bema seat, sits down, calls for a basin, and as everybody on the hillside watches with some ceremony, washes his hands, gets up, walks down those steps, goes into the praetorium, as he does, takes that, that towel and hands it to one of the soldiers. It's the way I picture it. And I picture him looking back over his shoulder and saying, with the words of Jesus ringing in his mind, saying, you do what you will. So Pilate goes in. Now you know what's going to happen. They are going to take Jesus, and we've got to spend some time with this, but they're going to take Jesus, and uh, there will be some preparation, but by 9 o'clock in the morning, he's going to be raised up on a Roman cross. And we'll talk about that for just a few minutes. Let me just say this. This is not the end of the Pilate story. Because in John 19, we're told, this, this is what, what really convinces me that there's more going on here. Because we're told here that Pilate wrote a title. Now I'm going to say again and again that crucifixion, as it was fine-tuned by the Roman Empire, was primarily about putting down sedition. And so the actual act of crucifixion was not nearly so much about killing the seditionist as it was about putting down the sedition. And there were all sorts of protocols, we're going to come back to this, built into the way it had to be done in the Roman world because it was a grand, gruesome, extended object lesson of the suicidal foolishness of raising your hand against Rome. That's what's going on. And part of that not, not in every case, but in many cases there would be, and Pilate was under no obligation to do this. We can't find any record in, in the Roman writings and so on that this was legally obligatory, but it was very, very common to affix what's called the titulus. And the titulus would exactly describe the crime for which this man was being crucified, as if to say, don't be messing with Rome, right? So Pilate and... and, and uh, well, he, he, he writes a, the title, the titulus, as it's called in the Roman world. He put it on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, this is what I love. Many of the Jewish leaders read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It always would be. I'll come back to this a little later, but 
Matter of fact, we'll talk about it more in the morning. But suffice it to say that because it was important to the Romans, what was going on here was an object lesson to, 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 to retard or to uh, diminish whatever seditious impulse might be arising in the heart of anybody else. You know what I'm saying? It was, a, it was an object lesson. So they would always have it near a city gate. And the reason, just outside of a city gate, because a city gate is a choke point, and you've got to go through there. And they want this to be, a matter of fact, it would always be, it wouldn't be raised up on a hillside like you see sometimes, it's silly, but it would be on a little bit of a rise so you could see it, even in a deep crowd. You could see over, the, over everybody else's head because they wanted you to see this. So here they are at this place where Jesus crucified. And by the way, there was undoubtedly a standard place. They didn't just go pick a place. There was a place of crucifixion in any major city, and the, 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 the vertical posts would be secured in the ground and so on permanently. But anyway, I go back to it. Many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified. It was near the city, and he wrote it in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. He didn't have to do that. And they come back, and the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, now this is what I want you to see. Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the, that is, he's a seditionist. And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. Now, folks, this is staggering. Pilate is a Roman official. Rome has no, there's one king, his name is Caesar. For a Roman official to emblazon above Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And see, I can't help but associate Pilate's confession there with what Jesus said just a couple of hours. You say rightly that I'm a king. It was for this purpose that I came into the world, to bear witness to that truth, to that truth. And anyone who is of the truth is going to hear my voice. And now Pilate, I think putting his life and his career in the line, emblazons Jesus of Nazareth, the king. And when the Pharisees and the Sadducees come back, he says, that's my confession. What I have written, I have written. I think there is good reason to think that's a confession of faith. You do with it what you will. Now, for what it's worth, the early church, very early church, remembered Pilate as a saint. And to be honest with you, there, he's, he's, he's canonized in several in the Coptic church and, and, and other early churches and so on. And there, there are more than one explanation for that. But here, let me just... Wind up with that, and then we're going to go to the crucifixion itself for just a few minutes. But here's the point, folks. I think the reason Paul said to Timothy, you know, go to school, I adjure thee by the good confession. And remember, the only time Jesus speaks is in those two private interviews. The good confession that Jesus made. And before Pontius Pilate, it certainly teaches us that Jesus was jealous for the truth, as I said, right? Because he's so careful to tease out exactly what you, uh, Pilate is saying. It also, I think, teaches us that Jesus was, was, was jealous for the purposes of God. As awful as it was, Jesus knew he had to go to the cross. And he, as much as gives Pilate seems permission to go through with it. But I'll tell you something else. Jesus loved the truth. He loved the purposes of God. He also loved the man Pilate. Jesus loved the man Pilate. And I think the impact, I, 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 I really believe that now, again, I'm going to go back to Peter. Pilate was determined to let him go. All right, I'm going to leave it alone. I could go on. But let me take you to the crucifixion. And if you go to the notes now, I have Friday, a day of messianic perfection. And I give you the, uh, 
the event, and, and as I say, by 9 o'clock, Jesus is going to be affixed to a Roman cross. And I think, I want to spend just a few minutes, and I don't know any other way to do it, actually, to, to sort of trace the narrative of the death of our Savior, other than to trace the words that he speaks. So you know that for the first three hours, as Jesus hangs on the cross, the sky remains light. The sun is shining in its normal brilliance. And during those three hours, Jesus speaks three times. Now let me say that this is another place where you have to harmonize. No one gospel gives us all, all of these sayings. But when you put the gospels together, it's quite apparent this is how it unfolded. Maybe not the exact order, but very basically. But certainly, what we know for sure is that before the sun grew dark at noon, Jesus said, first of all, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I'd love to talk to you about it. Suffice it to say that I think it's primarily a function of the bottomless mystery of Jesus' claim to be God come in the flesh. But however you like it, Jesus does graciously pray for the forgiveness of those who are guilty of his death. Then there is a thief on either side. And you know that story. What I cherish about this is, 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 is this dynamic that the one believing thief said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What's interesting about that is that is such an Old Testament prayer. Because in the Old Testament, the believer, the saint, was absolutely confident of resurrection unto an eternal kingdom. They knew that. That was, that was their birthright as, as, as followers of Yahweh, that there was going to be an end-time kingdom, and they were going to be resurrected unto that kingdom. But you know what? The grave was really dark to the Old Testament saint because nobody had ever been there. What we call the intermediate state between death and physical resurrection, it was just dark and mysterious and, 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 and foreboding. They didn't like to think about the grave. What's the Old Testament word for the grave? Sheol, right? Who goes to Sheol? Everybody goes to Sheol. Lost people, donkeys, saved people, everybody goes to Sheol because they, they didn't differentiate it. When you die, you go to this dark place called Sheol. We don't know anything about it. But so now this thief says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, no, no, I can do better than that today. I think this thief is the first man in human history to die with revelatory confidence that he was going immediately to a place of delight. He really takes a pretty significant step. Now, Jesus had pulled the curtain back a little bit when he told the story about Lazarus. But uh, now he says to that thief, today. And then, of course, he looks down, and let me just tell you, as I mentioned, Rome fine-tuned a very ancient method of execution to meet her demands that it be primarily about putting down the sedition. And uh, one of the protocols was that, as I say, he had to be on a cross on a bit of a rise that was high enough that people could see around him. But by the same token, the normal protocol was to have the person on the cross low enough that as he was dying, the dogs could begin to nibble. And of course, the birds would begin to peck. And I'm, I'm putting two and two together here, and it's really possible I'm getting 22, okay? But just take it under consideration. I think what is at stake might be this. That the Romans, and generally the Roman, the actual guards who were doing this, would often allow somebody, and many times it was a family member, 
And that family, somebody could come. It could just be somebody from the crowd. And they would grab a long branch and they would just stand close enough that they could chase away the dogs and chase away the birds just to save the poor dying wretch that last measure of ignominy. Now we know that from history, all right? Jesus is on the cross and he looks down and he sees his mother. And his brothers are not there. And I wonder if she's not there doing that duty. But there's some other women, but his own brothers are not there. Now let me say again, quickly. We know the rest of the story. We know that after his resurrection, Jesus is going to appear to his brother James, and James is going to become a believer. He's going to become a leader in the Jerusalem church, and both James and Jude are going to write. We know that. Again, Jesus did not know that unless the Spirit somehow whispered in his ear, and I don't think he did, and I'll tell you why. Because why does Jesus turn Mary over to John? Can you imagine the, the, the heaviness of heart? As he looks down, he sees his own mother. She's there at the cross, maybe performing this duty. He looks into the crowd. It says he saw John standing by, but the idea seems to be nearby, perhaps hiding in the crowd. And so Jesus calls John out, and he says, Behold your mother, woman, being careful not to call her mother because he's not going to be there to be the son to a mother anymore. Woman, behold thy son. It is, listen, I, I, should, I can't get lost in this, but listen. Sometime between Luke 2, Jesus is 12, and Matthew 3, Jesus goes to be baptized. Somewhere in there, quite clearly, his father Joseph dies. His adopted father Joseph dies. There are several times in the narrative of his ministry when he encounters his family. Joseph is not there. He would have been there. He's not here. And the tradition is, and I think it's strong tradition, Joseph is dead. When Joseph died, Jesus, by every demand of Bible and culture, would have stepped into the role and give leadership. Jesus knows what it is to raise a family. He poured himself into his half-sibling brothers. He loved them. John 7 says, baldly, his brothers did not believe on him. That was six months before Jesus died at the Feast of Tabernacles. That is... It was at the Feast of Tabernacles. The point is that, and I've heard people suggest, and I think it's absolutely dead wrong, that the reason Jesus turned G, uh, Mary over to John was because his family was poor and John's was wealthy. That's so wrong. That's so wrong. Listen, look at me. I'm celebrating this truth more and more in my life. When, people, when a, parents get old, it's the responsibility of their children to take care of them, right? Amen and amen out there? Now, my point is, Jesus would never have underwritten the care. He had able-bodied brothers. Their responsibility. Why did Jesus turn Mary over to be? Because the spiritual battles to come. And what does it mean anything to you to realize that on the cross, he was careful to care for his beloved mother? He had been that faithful, dutiful son who had cared for her through the years and had helped her raise the other children and so on. When Jesus moved to Capernaum from Nazareth, this is just a little insight, and he did it for strategic ministry, he took his family with him. He is in charge of that family. But beyond that, I'm going to go back to it. We know that his brothers are going to get saved. I don't think Jesus knew that. And I would argue that the record suggests that as Jesus hung there, 
His heart was heavy not only with this awful awareness that he was going to be made sin for us, but his heart was heavy with the reality that those whom he loved best in this world had rejected the truth. Folks, do you have unsaved loved ones? Is your heart heavy for them? What does it mean that Jesus understands that? He's been there. Now, because I think of his faithful life, when he does resurrect, his brothers do bow the knee to him. Praise God for that. But now the sun grows dark. It's not physical dark. That is, it's, it's a grayness. It's, it's not dark so you can't see the hand in front of your face because God wants us to see this scene. But God draws a, a physical grayness. There are records in antiquity of this same thing happening in other parts. This is recorded in other parts of the world. I think the sun, in some supernatural way, it, it diminished its light, and there was a grayness that descended on this scene because for three hours, Jesus is going to hang in silence. And at the end of those three hours, he's going to cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the point is that God draws this, 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 this grayness across the, the world because this scene is the most awful miscarriage of justice, the most awful violation of all that is right and sacred that history has ever seen. And God accentuates that by, by, by pulling this pall, but, but he wants us to see it. And you know, I, I would always, I say always, but it, it always seemed to me that, that the seven sayings on the cross uh, you know, it was kind of an exercise in which one of these is not like the other. You know what I'm saying? Because you got these six majestic, and then you got, I think there were six sayings on the cross. Because, this is the way I would put it together. During the, the, the daylight, during the, while the sun is shining, Jesus speaks those three times. Now, this grayness is drawn across the face of the earth, and Jesus hangs there, and for three hours, the Father disfellowships the Son. And as we talked about before, I think we will spend eternity trying to understand better this triune God of ours. And with every step in our greater understanding of the relationship, we'll understand how awful this scene is. As the Father it, it, it's staggering. It just takes my breath away that Jesus was willing. And the Father, the Father was willing. And let me tell you, tell you something, the atoning work was done on the cross. You know, when we think of death, we think immediately and, 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 and kind of exclusively of physical death. Now, physical death is a, is a reality. Look at me. I'm as close as anybody in the room. But I'll take it seriously. But I'll tell you something, physical death is an afterthought with God. You know how hard it is for God to fix physical death? Lazarus, come out here. There he comes. It's that simple. You know what it is to take care of spiritual death? The first time we encounter death in the Bible, it's Genesis 3. God says to Adam, don't eat, and the day you do, you'll die. And so he ate, and 938 years later he died. All right. No, of course not. He had walked in the cool of the day. He knew what it was to have perfect, open beautiful fellowship with the God who had made him to fellowship that way. Now he has sin, he is alien. You know what? Jesus watched that happen. Jesus knows by observation the horror of being alienated from God. 
but he doesn't know it by experience. And so now Jesus is enduring spiritual death, alienation from God. And those three hours are, are, are more bottomlessly horrible. There is an infinity of suffering that is sufficient to satisfy God's holiness. It's not an angry holiness, it's a righteous holiness. But God never had to deliberate the wages of sin. By reason of who he is, the wages of sin is death, has to be death. But he did provide an innocent victim who could die the death that we deserve to die, and that's what's going on. So Jesus hangs there for three hours, he says nothing. At the end of those three hours, he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then in John 19, let's go there. John 19, Jesus, uh, and I love this verse. Let me, I got to be done, but let me just tell you this real quickly. This is a spiritual exercise I would would recommend to you that I think you'll find profitable. Uh, I've read in a couple of places, Arnie Fruchtenbaum says this, Zola Levitt says this, that in, in the Jewish culture, when, when, when the Jews, and especially the rabbis, would contemplate a passage, when they would devotionally contemplate a passage, they had to do it by memory, and they would say aloud the first, they didn't have verses, but the first thought of the passage, and then they would kind of under their breath, so nobody could hear, sing the, the passage, or especially a psalm, and then they would say aloud the last passage. I Psalm 22.1 is, uh, 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 my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I think very possibly Psalm 22 is the scripture which Jesus sang to himself to get him through the experience of the cross. Because Psalm 22 is stunning. I haven't time to kick you there, but it, it, he, it starts out with, my God, my God. And then you have this, they, they looked upon me, they, my bones stuck out, they, they pierced me. I mean, this, it's, it's just this perfect description of Jesus' experience on the cross. But it's, it's, the, it's, it's the cry of a man who has absolutely no reason to hope, but he won't give up. That's Psalm 22, and it's just the most gut-wrenching, uh, uh, desperate cry of, of, of helplessness. And, but, but all of a sudden, in verse 21, the whole psalm stops, and it says, You've heard me. And then the rest of the psalm goes on, I'm going to tell the world what you've done for me. Well, interestingly enough, John is giving us the account of Jesus on the cross. And all of a sudden, he says in John 19 and verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished. And I believe the point is that his suffering was complete. He had satisfied the holiness of God. And so he said, all things were accomplished that the Scripture, in other words, the Scriptures, the demands of the Scriptures had been fulfilled. So knowing that, he said, I thirst. Well, I said I think there are six sayings. Because I think the point is this. Jesus had hung there in agony and terror that we can only dimly imagine and will never fully understand throughout eternity. But we know that Crucifixion saps your body of every drop of moisture, not just the, the moisture in your glands and so on, but, but it starts to extract moisture out of your red blood cells. and so It just extracts. And, and most people on the cross, most men died of asphyxiation because your throat begins to swell 
and and your 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 tongue swells and gets so dry and parched and swollen that you ultimately you can't breathe. And they die just from gagging to death. And I think the point is this, that as Jesus hung there, those physical effects assaulted his body, and now six hours have gone by, and Jesus realizes that the atoning work is done, but Jesus has something he wants to say. And he doesn't have the strength to say it. And the entire moral universe has longed to hear him say it. And he's paid a price we'll never fully understand in eternity in order to earn the right to say it. But he doesn't have the strength to say it. And I think Jesus probably just gathered what strength he had and whispered in a voice that only those at the foot of the cross could hear, I thirst. And so some soldier takes this cheap wine, puts it on a sponge and lifts it, and I picture Jesus trying to get some life back into his throat. He's taking that wine and trying to find some strength in his throat box because he has something to say. And he longs to say it. And he barely has the strength to say it. But he gathers himself knowing that all things are accomplished. And he says, it is finished. It's finished. Does that not take your breath away? The books are balanced. The price is paid. It's What could be more heartbreaking to God in heaven than for us to think that there's something we got to do to that? Now, forgive me. I could never walk past this. The next verse, the next thing he says is, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. No longer my God, my God. The price has been paid. The relationship is blessedly restored. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he gave up the ghost and died. Physical death is part of the curse. He does endure physical death. Beyond that, physical death is necessary to demonstrate physical resurrection. Jesus dies. His body is laid in a tomb sometime Friday afternoon before the sun goes down. So now he's there on Friday, all day Saturday, and on Sunday morning, some women are going to come to dress the body, and they're going to discover the tomb is empty, save some testifying angels. We'll talk about that on Sunday morning. Let's pray again. Father, we do rejoice over the gift of your son, and we are staggered. We are staggered again and again, and God, help us. Help us never to get over this. Father, might it just draw us up short every time we, we ponder this reality, that this one who existed from eternity, who called the earth into existence, this one was so faithful to his Father and he was so anxious for our redemption that he paid a price that we'll never understand. But Father, because he did, we have life which is not our own. And so, Father, we give it back to you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for these dear folk. Thank you for the ministries represented here. Pray that you continue to prosper those ministries. Give us a good time of fellowship. But Father, once again, I'd ask, and we would ask together, that you would implant upon our soul, spirit, anew this reality that we have been bought with a price. We are not our own. We are anxious to glorify you. Thank you for the opportunity through your son. Amen.